Hi and welcome back. Today I have Peter Ryan of Ryan Advisory joining me. He is the principal analyst of Ryan Advisory, which is obviously an advisory firm in the customer service CX or CRM space. Uh, he advises uh, CX specialist firms or BPOs about the CX market. So he is quite a prolific writer, both on uh, LinkedIn and his own website, ryanadvisory.com. He has some really interesting uh, viewpoints. And actually, we didn't really cover too many of them uh, in this podcast, but we certainly covered the CX industry, its evolution, uh, the changes in terms of employment with remote work and the great resignation, and also offshoring versus onshoring versus nearshoring. So it's a really good conversation with Peter Ryan. As always, if you want any of the show notes, go to outsourceaccelerator.com slash podcast. Enjoy. This podcast is brought to you by Outsource Accelerator. We are the world's leading outsourcing marketplace and advisory. We help big and small businesses with their outsourcing needs, and we can help you too. We cover everything from offshore business and staffing strategy optimal outsourcing structures, implementations, and fully managed services. If you are already outsourcing, about to start, or are somewhere in between, then we can ensure that you get the best from outsourcing. That's the best prices, best terms, and of course, the best results from your offshore operations. The Outsource Accelerator Marketplace now covers over three thousand outsourcing firms representing a global workforce of over five million people. We also host this leading outsourcing podcast, publish inside outsourcing, and have over 15,000 pages of content on the site. Because we span the entire market, we can ensure that you get the best deal possible. Get in touch today. Visit us at outsourceaccelerator.com slash quote. Also, if you find this podcast interesting or valuable, please share it. We have now produced hundreds of episodes featuring the outsourcing world's most prominent luminaries. Please show your support by sharing this podcast today. Peter Ryan, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, Derek. It's nice to see you, and I fully expect you're a lot warmer in the Philippines than we are here in Canada right now. Absolutely. Good gosh, yes, yes. That's one of the things going for the Philippines, actually. It's, it's, uh, it's the same temperature in, uh, in winter and summer and midnight and midday. It's just uh, completely the same, which is great. Yeah, uh, don't, don't rub it in. Don't, don't rub it in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and I actually spoke to the um, call center association, one of the call center associations in Canada. We're actually on the podcast talking to a few of the associations around the world to see what various people are doing, what various people are up to. So I'm, I'm kind of on a virtual tour of the world at the moment for the industry. Right on. So, Peter, you are the principal analyst of uh, Ryan Advisory. And um, I want to maybe get a bit of an introduction into Ryan Advisory and also your background, and then we're going to really segue 
um, into the customer service sector uh, and your thoughts and opinions on that. So I suppose if you want to start by just introducing, well, Ryan Advisory quickly uh, to, to sort of set the scene and then we can go back into your uh, your background. So Ryan Strategic Advisory was born five years ago. We are an organization that looks specifically at the BPO sector and specifically within that subset of the CX element around outsourcing. Uh, the, the whole idea is that customer experience, especially delivered by third parties, is evolving very quickly. It's been, I would say, on a constant evolution basis over the course of the past two decades, at least as long as I've been in the industry. And what we try to do is to make sense for our clients about the direction the market's going, whether it comes to vertical trends, whether it comes to the technologies involved in delivering CX, whether it comes to some of the different elements around functionality that need to be taken into account, or if it comes to some of the locations or the different business models that it involves in regards to delivering the best experience possible for end users. Right. And you have worked directly in the uh, CX industry, but more you come from the analytics and and um, sort of management consultancy background. Is that right? Yeah, that's a pretty good assessment. I got my start in the CX space going back about nearly 20 years when I was living in London and I was on the hunt for a job. And I encountered an analyst firm that I dealt with in a previous life working in the computer sector, and I thought they were very good. So I applied for a role. They had a number of analyst roles open, and they asked me if I'd like to join the CRM team. And I said, sure, I'd be very interested in having an interview to find out a little bit more. And after I hung the phone up, the first thing I did was I I went to Yahoo. It was still pre-Google days, and I typed in, what is CRM? Uh, and found out very quickly it stood for customer relationship management. But I was very fortunate to join a great team of people and to immerse myself in what I think is one of the most fascinating industries that you can find anywhere. And here we are nearly two decades later, uh, still very much involved in the space and enjoying it quite a lot. I remember about 18 years ago, I was actually in London and in in my sort of business interactions, I started to hear the word CRM. Is that when it really... Um, was born and and it became almost a bit of a buzzword and now I think it's just you know part of the furniture it's it's now just kind of everyone knows it but is was it kind of that concept born about twenty years ago or does it go a lot further back? I I think I think the acronym or the the expression CRM definitely probably found its footing in the early two thousands but conceptually it had been there for a long time and I, I truly think that when we started to put a label on it or discuss some of the science around customer relationship management, which now we would refer to to as CX or customer experience, it probably really, I think, got that traction and that level of substantiality probably around the 2000 to 2005 mark. And maybe do you think it was within kind of whatever synergy or collaboration with the rise of the SaaSes that that really made it into a product as opposed to sort of a concept? Um, Because maybe CX is really become CX because that's the activity, whereas CRM is now kind of dominated by the Salesforce and the HubSpots and things mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I, I would agree with that assessment. Cool. So 
how would you describe the customer service industry? Maybe, you know, take us back from when you started and a little bit how has it evolved since the earlier days, I suppose? Well, when we think about when I started, the whole dynamic around customer experience management or CX or CRM or whatever the heck we want to call it was really dominated by discussions about where the work was going to be delivered from. It was highly focused on individuals, on human beings who were delivering customer experience to consumers. It was overwhelmingly done on the telephone. And the the whole question was, will the work be done onshore or will the work be done offshore? If it's done offshore, will it be done in the Philippines or will it be done in India? Those were the, the dominant track points that you would have in regards to the discussions that, that would be going on. In terms of automation and the use of automation, it was present. It was highly disregarded by consumers. Uh, everybody had a horror story around it. And the use of automated technology, whether it was IVR or speech automated IVR, was was really not that well viewed, if, if I'm perfectly honest with you. And as we've gone through the course of the past couple of decades, at least as, as I've been following it, I think that there's definitely been a shift in a whole series of different ways. Now we're embracing as much technology as we can. Technology is being seen as a value add. Technology is being seen as something that can enhance the relationship with the end consumer. Certainly the, the discussion around offshoring is still there, but so too is the discussion about nearshoring. So too now, as we know, the discussion about work from home and the the whole concept about remote working is very much a part of what we're talking about in the whole element around CX today. And what I would say to you, Derek, is that I think now there's a lot more moving parts, but the focus as opposed to, say, 20 years ago is not about how we can squeeze as much cost out of every interaction, but now it's about how we can try and add as much value to the interaction to make sure that the relationship with the end user is as sticky as possible. Yeah, and what was the what was the decision process between back in the early days? The decision between onshore versus offshore. I would assume offshore was vastly cheaper, but then yeah. you would talk to the client about potentially a compromise in quality, a comp- you know, an increase in friction. Was that the kind of conversation you would sort of have, and then see whether they could stomach that that you know compromise in quality? Because I really do think twenty years ago there was a compromise in quality whereas now i think there's you know it's kind of equalized a little bit now i i think that you're right and i can recall when i got involved in the industry when you would have discussions about offshoring you go to a cocktail party or you would have lunch with people and and the topic came up and everybody had a horror story about a contact center that they'd spoke to in the offshore and I think this really started to hit home around maybe about the 2004-2005 mark. And I remember living in the UK and there was a television ad on, I can't remember for which financial institution, but they were talking about how their contact center, their, what do they say, my local curry house is around the corner, but my contact center for my bank is in India. And it, they were they were playing on 
I think some of the unfortunate misconceptions and unfortunately some of the less uh, fortuitous reputations that agents in the offshore had, and unfortunately India was a big part of that. And that, I think, had a big, big draw to the whole concept about reshoring, bringing work back into domestic confines, whether it was into the UK or into the US. In the United States, there was a TV show that came on NBC for, I think, about one season. Might not even have lasted, but it was called Outsource. And it was, again, all about an offshore contact center that was it, – it, it went really from the gambit of inaccurate to, I would say, almost uh, – you know, almost slanderous. And mm. I, I think these were things that really reinforced negative stereotypes that individuals had about how work could be done in the offshore. Uh, the overwhelming uh, amount of which just wasn't true. You know, you fast forward, here we are going into 2022. And I would dare say that the quality that you would get in various offshore locations that are traditional spots for doing customer experience work would be on a par with what you'd be able to get if the work was being done in a domestic location. That's the emphasis on quality that's being placed, whether it's in a spot like you are in the Philippines, whether it's in South Africa, whether it's in Mexico, Jamaica, India, you name it. There's a realization that the only way that an offshore destination is going to work is if you put the emphasis on the quality. Yeah, and it, it won't happen overnight, will it? And these were, you know, these are truly developing countries and um, it, it takes time to sort of build these skills and build the, the depth of talent, but it definitely happens. And I, I draw a sort of a, a alignment to manufacturing, you know, and when I was growing up, my dad, maybe derogatively, would, would call Japanese manufactured products Jap crap, you know, because it was sort of known as crap. And then all of a sudden, Japanese products was they were sort of the, the best in the world. And then also, you know, Chinese manufacturing was often considered to be shonky. And now, you know, the Chinese are the most sophisticated manufacturers in the world and they're producing some of the, you know, highest complexity, highest quality stuff going um, to a degree that America or any of the other world can't really produce to their level. So it's kind of a, there's a maturation curve to all of these markets and the and the skill sets within them, isn't it? Yeah, very much so. And uh, I think that's the whole thing. It's a it's an evolution and the evolution comes full circle. And I, I, I do believe for the organizations that have been leveraging and continue to leverage different offshore and nearshore locations, they understand that the only way you can actually get the long term out of a relationship that you might have with a particular destination is by placing the emphasis on training, on quality uh, recruitment, and making sure that you retain people to the nth degree because Obviously, the more that you're able to keep good agents in the contact center, whether it's outsourced or captive, the better the interactions are going to be over the long term. And with these big consultancies and like the Accentures of the world and, you know, they, they work with the big enterprise clients and um, is it a bit of a magic bullet of theirs that they go that they are the introducer of this concept of global employment and it's almost like a magic bullet and they introduce their clients to it and it's a wonderful thing and it saves a lot of money. But actually, it, you know, are they, I suppose back then they were the gatekeepers. Like it wasn't really possible without this sort of firm doing the, uh, what, the facilitation. Whereas now, you know, it's it, more people are aware of it. There's less kind of barriers. There's less friction. Um, do you see one of their... Well, was it one of their magic bullets? You know, like this is how we optimize your firm by basically taking things offshore. 
You know, you you could make that argument. I think now it's gone beyond that and and the simple cost element. I would say one of the things that the pandemic has taught us is the fact that the need for a diversified delivery platform is every bit as important from a business continuity standpoint as it is from a cost management perspective. And something, Derek, that I've been looking at is the extent to which the clients of outsourcers are really not just wishing but expecting that their outsourcing partners are in a position where they can have a proportion of delivery domestic, but they can also have a proportion that's going to be in the near shore and a proportion in the offshore. It comes down to just rational management. And, you know, what a good example I, I have been using for the past few months is the organizations that were unfortunately impacted by the truly tragic events that occurred in Durban and Johannesburg back in July. Well, the, the ones that were going to be in a better position to manage their end user interactions are going to be the ones that had capacity in other parts of South Africa as well as other parts of the world. And they would be able to move in a redundant fashion those interactions over to different centers to, to pick up the slack as, as, uh, the, as I mentioned, the truly tragic events were, were taking place in those two cities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's, you know, we, I actually, we were talking a lot about BCPs prior to COVID uh, in the beginning of 2020. And it, I think it kind of shocked the world. And, and you know, it was a bit mm-hmm. of a sales pitch for BPOs. You know, you need this sort of extra capacity, the double up, the redundancies and things like that. And then something like COVID came along, you know, and they did all the of this kind of planning for contingencies. And then COVID came along and, and it really knocked people, people hadn't envisaged this kind of disruption you know and and all offices globally were taken down or disrupted certainly for a certain amount of time so um it's a you realize your vulnerabilities don't you sometimes you know Mm -hmm. despite sort of best laid plans i suppose no and this is it and i think you're right sometimes it takes a catalyst like covid to make organizations realize how important bcp is and one of the things derek i think that was very clear to a lot of individuals as we entered that period was the fact that there's so many organizations so many so many companies and cx departments that just weren't ready for it and that's one of the reasons so many moved over to work with outsourcers over the course of the past 18 to 20 months. It's because the BPO community, as a general rule, has been much better prepared to deal with these types of situations and scenarios than many of the captives were. Got it. Got it. And so how have you seen, I want to talk about maybe the employment aspect of CX a little bit afterwards mm-hmm. but first how have you seen the the what the responsibilities or the functions of cx changing you know previously i assume it was just answering a phone and make sure people don't complain too much whereas now it's omni-channel uh you know it's, yeah. it's voice text chat it is also engaging the audience you know and yeah. and also we have the sort of the audience is your community and then you also have soft sales how, how you know is it sort of that's a lot more complicated, yeah. Yeah, you're you're right. It, it's really gone from a simple scenario where you might have an agent who was answering a phone to change an address or to take an order number down. Now, I think you you touched on a number of different things that are really important. You talk about the channel management and the fact that you have agents who are not just picking up the phone but also interacting on web chat who might be managing social media interactions, who might be dealing with video chat, which is probably one of the most exciting elements in terms of channel management that we've seen 
coming forward in the last few years. I think that probably for me, the biggest shift I've seen in how CX and how the agents representing organizations have to have to manage themselves is that they're no longer just simply managing interactions, but they're brand ambassadors. And there's an expectation that if you're going to be working as an agent on the front line, that you've got to be informed, you've got to be enthusiastic about the brand or about the solution that you're representing. And I also think, Derek, too, there's also an expectation, especially amongst the consumers, that you're going to be a problem solver. That if they call up, if they come to the point where they have gone through the self-help on a website or they've watched a YouTube video or they have looked at the FAQs and they are going to pick the phone up, somebody made a a point to me, this is probably the fourth or fifth degree of the, the CX element that this consumer is going to be dealing with. And they're going to want you to fix their problem. It can't just be a person who is going to take a lackadaisical approach and say, oh, sorry, I can't help you. Have a nice day. Try again some other time. They're going to have to spend time. They're going to have to try their best to figure out what's gone wrong, how they can help, and how they can keep that individual from attriting as a customer. Because I I heard a stat a few years ago, and it just makes total sense to me, that it costs something like four to six times more to win a new customer than it does to retain one. So retaining that base of revenues is just so, so important. And people underestimate the complexity of good customer service or, or, or dispute resolution because you've got to understand the, the customer's journey historically. You've got to understand where mm-hmm. they are now. You've got to understand all the systems that they've interacted with to get them there. You've got to be able to sort of touch various parts of the organization to potentially resolve it. It's enormously complex, isn't it? You know, And um, especially within a big complex organization with multiple products and things like that, it, there is no easy solution. I think people easily go, you know, customer service is easy. Just smile and, and solve the issues. But it's enormously complex. It's enormously complex, and you point to something that I think is really interesting too, Derek, in that you've got large multinational organizations that in many cases are still using very antiquated approaches to CX. And something that I I do hear still to this day is that you could have an agent working for a highly sophisticated financial services outfit or a highly sophisticated media outlet. And the systems that they're using to represent their organization with end users might have solutions on them that are, are well out of date. They've got to use multiple databases, multiple applications all at once to solve problems. It just doesn't work. And mm-hmm. that just ends up making the end user who's at the other end of the interaction, whether it's a voice interaction or a digital one, that much more frustrated as they have to wait for the agent to try and identify what a problem might be or wait for an agent to go through multiple databases to get the, the history of what their relationship with the company has been. And if we're putting people into these situations, in many cases that could be very tense or that could be uh, very sensitive in terms of the long-term relationship with the enterprise, it just makes sense to equip them with the tools that they need to do their job properly. We've got the technology, they exist today, but the investment's key. This is, it's the irony about customer service actually. And, you know, I, uh, advise a lot of people in terms of how you start offshoring and very commonly I'd say look start with customer service last like it's customer service is the coal face of your 
organization, you know, and, and it's where the rubber touches the road. And it is yep. so easy for, you know, underpaid, under-trained people to misrepresent your company and put a foot wrong. And, you know, and it, it, it's an irony of the industry that so often it is the sort of lowest paid, least trained, least equipped kind of sector. And it is so important. Do you think, you know, for sophisticated businesses that would understand this, you can sort of forgive smaller businesses, but is it kind of a conscious disregard or is it just, you know, they they sort of can't, it would cost a lot of money if you put, you know, your sort of your highest paid staff on the front line. So is it kind of always just balancing that, um, you know what you should do, but then balancing it with how much you can afford to spend that way? Well, one of, the, one of the things that I've noticed since I've been in the industry is that whenever you have times of serious disruption, that's traditionally when you're going to see an organization either stand pat on budgets or even cut them. And usually the CX department is going to be one of the first ones that's going to be impacted in that way. You know, we saw it in the global financial crisis. We've seen it in, in various economic slowdowns. Uh, I, I think it's very clear that when the COVID pandemic started, that CX was certainly seen as a priority. And we saw so many organizations shifting individuals to work from home. But for me, what was heartening was it's probably the first time I've actually seen organizations decide that they were going to make some, some real strategic investments in the agent community and in the technology that's required. In many cases, it was driven by compliance and the need for information security. Uh, but at the end of the day, in the past, I'd say 18 to 24 months, there has definitely been, I'd say, an improvement in many organizations in terms of making some of these investments. As I say, many of them were driven by the need to do so from uh, from the standpoint of compliance. Uh, but at the same time, at least they're being done. And what we're also picking up on is the fact that some of the chronic underinvestment, at least there's been some catch up in, which is really good news. And there's just such a through line now through the entire organization, isn't there? Everything is happening on Instagram and there's, you know, um, there's public forums and there's reviews and you actually can't escape it and you actually need to then embrace and bring it all within one community, which is really, I suppose, you know, it, it's, I don't know what it is, doing a deal with the devil. Like you, you, once they're in your fold, you really need to look after them. But I suppose that's the fundamentals of a better business. But you, you need to make sure you're treating people properly then, don't you? Well, you've got to make sure you're treating them properly. And obviously, working conditions are important. But something that's really important, too, that I've noticed is being part of that whole line of sight that you're talking about is now the need to truly offer people an idea about where they can go in an organization when you're onboarding them. It can't be a case of the, the rhetoric that we've been hearing for years. Well, if you start out as an agent, you could end up uh, as the CEO of the company. That's great. And there are stories like that and some very inspiring stories that, that we could recount. But equally important, I think, is the fact that we have to realize not everybody who starts as an agent is going to want to be the CEO they might decide they want to be a quality assurance individual, a manager around quality assurance. They might decide that they want to uh, forge a career in IT. They might decide that they want to forge a career in operations management. Some of them might decide they want to get into the marketing space, and some of them decide that they might want to get into the management of the overall firm. So I, I think it's important 
that we recognize having a, a good workplace and a good atmosphere for people to thrive that's positive, that's exciting, that's vibrant, that's going to make them want to come to work is very, very key. So too is going to be making sure that when somebody joins that they don't feel they're going to be pigeonholed or there's going to be a glass ceiling and that they can't move above working on the front lines. They've got to have an understanding that they can progress if they want to progress and that the organization is going to put the resources in place as well as the plans in place on an individualized basis to make sure that they can thrive. Yeah. And I do see that a lot in the industry, you know, especially with the sort of medium to larger suppliers, like it, you know, it almost to a kind of McDonald's degree, you know, you, you start in this rank and then you earn these awards and then you go to the next one, but there's an incredible array of roles, functions, you know, whether it's team leads or trainers or QAs or supervisors or shift managers, or it's quite incredible, isn't it? You know, the, the sort of yep. uh, what social kind of uh, structures that are that are built around these now. It's um, really quite sophisticated kind of stuff. Um, Peter, I wanted to ask about in term, the, the evolution of with Omnichannel has also come a lot of tech and automation and machine learning and tools that assist with that, but then also tools that can potentially kind of wipe out the workers. Where do you, how have you seen that evolve over the, over the last 20 years and where do you see that standing now? Well, there's no question that automation has taken on more of a life of its own than it had, say, a decade ago. I think that there'd been a lot of pushback going back to what I was saying earlier about perhaps some of the not quite ready for prime time deployments, whether it was speech automated IVR or the traditional touch tone IVR. And I'd say probably around 2012, 2013, there seemed to be a lot more focus about finding ways of deploying automation in a CX space that were going to make sense from the perspective of managing in a quality fashion, the interactions that people might be having. And the good news on that, Derek, is that there has been a lot of momentum in that regard. Something that I've picked up on is the fact that we're not talking anymore about automation killing the jobs. We're not talking about emptying out the contact centers and everything is going to be done using computer-generated systems. Now it's a case of automation as a means of facilitating an interaction to a certain point and then when it hits a certain point, potentially moving it over to an agent if need be. Equally speaking, I think it's important is the idea about automation actually enabling the agent, having automated solutions that are focused for the agent that will be able to pull up certain bits of information, certain elements that they need to conduct a transaction or to conduct uh, some type of an interaction with a consumer in real time. Now, a lot of that's going to be driven with an AI element on the back of it. But the, the point is that automation is being deployed in such a way that it's constructive and it's focused on the quality and it's focused on the experience, not just of the consumer, but also of the agent. And I think it's a win-win all, all the way around. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because if, if AI and machine learning was really working, it's not just about replacing the worker or the yeah. But but actually, if it was really working, it would prevent customers having issues, wouldn't it? You know, it would actually sort exactly. of go further up the upstream and prevent. And so, it's it's more just making the system more efficient. But you know, customer service, the requirement for it, the disputes the sort of issues that arise it hasn't abated in any sense you know so i assume it's going to be around for a for a long time would you you know what did you think about the whole chat bot fad about five years ago i was just like i could not get on board with that because i just saw it as 
a text-based IVR, and there is not one uh, good IVR experience out there as far as I'm concerned. You know, IVRs, as soon as I, which are those sort of telephone option things for those that aren't aware, whenever I hear an IVR, I know that my time is going to be wasted. I know that the (laughs) option I need is not going to be there. I know that there's not going to be an option to talk to a person at the end of it. Um, you know, it's so frustrating. And these chatbots, everyone was sort of so excited about that and the AI that could drive these things, but they just ended up being a text-based IVR that went nowhere. Uh, so I, I'll take a different view on that. I think that there's been a lot of great work in terms of the chatbots, and I think that they're so good now that when you're actually interacting using web chat, the, there's a very good chance you could be interacting with a chatbot, and it's doing it so in such a seamless fashion. And it's because, like we were saying, the technology is improving. It's like a snowball. It just keeps improving year on year. And the AI behind it is, I think, driving a better quality and a more robust interaction. I've seen some amazing chatbots that have popped across my desk over the course of the past couple of years. And I tend to be a technology skeptic like you, Derek. Mm -hmm. I I immediately get my backup when I have a sense I'm being serviced by uh, a non-human or, as you say, when you get in some of those uh, telephone trees can be very frustrating. But now some of these are are just so good that you would not be able to distinguish whether you were dealing with a robot or an individual who was at the other end of the, uh, the other end of the keyboard. Interesting. Is that would that be a chatbot where it's specific to one company and that company has put in five years of you know data and development, or would it be a, a sort of open market chatbot that can be plugged into any company and then it's relatively effective? Is it sort of? Yeah, I think now more and more you're seeing organizations take on chatbots using solutions providers so maybe that more of that open market side that you're talking about and that they can be tailored and something that really has really taken me aback because i had a demonstration with one a week or two ago and the extent to which these can be tailored in such a quick fashion and how the ai background of these chatbots is able to learn as it goes along and, and effectively almost program itself to some extent it just makes the process that much less painless than it would have been say five ten years ago yeah, fascinating. It is. It is super exciting. I shouldn't uh, shun it all. Uh, and <laughs> how, how do you see the the evolution of the labour market then? So uh, you know, uh, globally, we have this labour shortage. We have the Great Resignation. Yeah. We have um, salaries going sky high. Uh, you know, massive inflationary pressures. How do you see those things? And then, as you mentioned earlier, uh, remote work, work from home, nearshoring, um, and employees calling the shots a lot more as well. So how do you see that impacting Mm -hmm. the industry? Well, you know, we're seeing it impacted, as you say, whether it's onshore, whether it's offshore, nearshore, it doesn't matter. There's far fewer people who are willing to do frontline work, whether it's in a contact center or whether it's in a retail or uh, the hospitality industry, much less than we've seen uh, in, in, in quite some time. And I think the industry is really trying to get its, its its head around it. I think there's a lot of misconceptions out there about the great resignation or about this, this excess of jobs relative to the number of people willing to fill them. But there's no question that individuals are taking a different view about what they want out of life. They're taking a different view about what they want to do as a career. And I, I saw a fascinating presentation. I was on a webinar 
speaking, and there was a labor market specialist from the United States, and uh, she really laid it out quite succinctly. Certainly, there are people who've decided that they aren't going to go back into the labor force just yet because they would prefer to perhaps stay at home and uh, collect COVID benefits if they're still in existence in the jurisdiction where they live. But equally speaking, a number of them have decided that you know what, I'm going to go back to school. This has made me think about what I want to do. The opportunities to retrain right now are like are more pervasive than they've ever been, and the support to do so in terms of student loans or scholarships are all over the place. And you can do a distance learning now. So there's people who are going to perhaps spend three, four years training to be uh, a baker or training to be a mechanic or training to be a lawyer or training to be an accountant. But the reality is, as they're doing this, that's taking them out of the labor force. And something also that I saw that was really interesting in the same presentation was the number of individuals that have decided they're going to be full-time caregivers, whether they have a, a friend or they have a family member that requires uh, full-time care or extended care. They've decided they're going to devote their time for the foreseeable future doing that. And again, what's that done? It's taken people out of the labor force. And mm. I think this is something that, that we're all coming to grips with. I don't think there is going to be any easy solution to this. It's very much at a macro level. Contact centers offering an extra dollar fifty an hour, I don't think it's going to fit the bill. It goes back to what we were saying earlier, Derek. If you're going to keep people or you're going to bring people in, you've got to offer them meaningful work and you've got to offer them intrinsic rewards. To use an expression I learned in my MBA times, Intrinsic rewards are as important as extrinsic rewards. You've got to make people feel good about the job they're going into, and they've got to feel good about it at the end of the day when they go home. Mm. And I think that's one of the marked differences about the developing world call centers is it really is seen as a career and it's seen as a pathway, whereas I think in the West, you know, it's it's kind of somewhere around a McDonald's job and either it's a transient job on your way to university mm -hmm. or you know, and it's not really highly regarded. And I suppose there's a sort of high correlation there to salary because it would be, I assume, one of the lowest paid salaries in in the West versus in the Philippines. It, it's significantly higher than most domestic jobs, you know, potentially 2x higher. And then when you're getting a good salary, you know, you really invest into it, into the career and climbing that ladder is exciting and compelling. And so maybe it is just a, you know, sort of a foundational issue of, of money, but um, really, it's it's quite a highly regarded uh, career path and, and an option in the Philippines and and in India, um, which is maybe the difference, you know. Um, but yeah, and, and you know, what's interesting is I I've traveled to lots of different offshore and nearshore locations, and what you've described is is very similar to the dynamic I've seen in so, so many of these spots where you have people who are actively seeking a role in a CX operation because they believe the fact that they can take what they've studied, whether it's in college or in university, and apply it and, and move up an organization. And I think you're spot on. I think one of the unfortunate realities of living in the North American context or Western Europe or Australian, New Zealand, Singapore, you name it, you've got uh, you've got a, almost a, a mindset. This is a stopgap. It's the kind of job I'm going to take between university and a real job, or it's going to be something I'm going to do to earn a few bucks uh, while I'm in university studying, or it's something I'm going to do while I figure myself out after I leave high school. It shouldn't be like that, but unfortunately, that's sort of the way it's settled. Mm -hmm. 
Peter, and so Ryan Advisory, I, I actually you caught my eye on LinkedIn, and I've read various articles of yours, uh, both on LinkedIn, but also on your website. So I encourage people to go and have a look at that. But thanks. Um, how do you fit in? Like you, you, you know, you're you're a thought leader somewhat in terms of the space, and it is. A, I think it's a sort of fundamentally interesting space. There's a lot happening, um, but you advise more the the BPO operations in terms of how to better identify their market position and their clients. Is that right? Yeah, that's a that's a very good way of looking at it. Exactly. Right, right. And what is if there's an elevated pitch, like how do you shine in this market? You know, what it, what is the kind of the secret sauce to, to being an effective uh, um, proponent in this market? Well, it's a really good question. And I think I would say there's a triangulated approach that I would use in terms of what my secret sauce would be. Number one, it's having access to the industry, having access to the people who are the decision makers to find out exactly what's going on in terms of what their plans are, in terms of where they see the industry going. Equally speaking, being able to to leverage as much quantitative data as possible. And for that reason, I always make a point each year of sounding the contact center markets, the enterprise buyers of contact center services. In fact, we've got our survey going out in January this year. It'll be the biggest one that we've done so far nearly 700 enterprise decision makers from North America, Western Europe, and Australia to find out what their views are going to be in terms of budget evolution, technology deployments, uh, their views on home working, offshoring, onshoring, the what types of technologies that they're going to be deploying over the course of the coming 12 months. And I think probably the third element of that triangulation, Derek, is really has to be the whole concept about the the ability to go out and and have those qualitative discussions with the decision makers who are going to be able to give you some flavor around what those numbers look like. You know, it's it's great to be able to size a market. It's great to be able to present some survey data. But at the end of the day, if you don't have some flavor based on what those numbers actually mean, why they're going in a certain direction, then it's really going to be very hard to interpret and to make some prognostications or to give some strategic advice. And that's really the approach we take to it. So I would say that we try to be the one-stop shop in the CXBPO space where you can always count on finding out exactly what the direction of the industry is going, but why it's going in that direction too. Fantastic. And do you see a lot of growth in the industry? Like, is, is there always this battle between having it in-house versus outsourced? Or do you think now the argument is one? Like, you know, you can never compete with a specialized firm and everyone should just outsource this stuff. Well, I can tell you, there's been a lot more movement since the start of the pandemic than I, I think we ever would have imagined. You know, something that became abundantly clear was business continuity, as we talked about. Many organizations weren't prepared. Work from home. Uh, I can tell you a heck of a lot of organizations on the captive side just weren't prepared. And it made sense that they would go out and talk to those specialists. There are still some organizations that feel that they can do it better in-house, and that's perfectly legitimate. If they've got the capital to invest, if they've got the processes in place, then they have to do what's right for them. But I do think there's been a large number of converts to working with BPOs for at least some of their capacity. And with any luck, we'll see that the needle will continue to shift in that direction. And last question, do, do you see a lot of it bleeding across into community management and, 
you know, reaching audience building. Do you see an increase of, of that um, sort of, I suppose, more touchy-feely stuff for the for the enterprise? Yeah, no, I, I think you're touching on something that, that really does make a lot of sense and something that I, I've noticed in terms of the clients I work with is the willingness to start offering functions, as you're saying, things like community management or moderation, just as a couple of examples, that perhaps a couple of years ago might not necessarily have been on the table, but they're starting to get capacity and they're starting to get competencies in those domains. And very clearly, a lot of the captains of a lot of the enterprises that are starting to shift some of the work over are saying, we don't just want you to take some of our frontline work or all of our frontline work. We'd like to move some of this more higher value add element to you as well, because it's got a CX component to it. Mm, for sure. Fascinating stuff. It's always so quickly evolving, isn't it? Peter Ryan, thank you so much. If, if people, of course, want to reach out to you or learn more, how can they do that? Great question, Derek. They can look for me at www.ryanadvisory.com. That's my website. I'm on LinkedIn as well. Uh, Peter Ryan Montreal, I believe, is the URL. And anybody's welcome to drop me a line. My email address is peter at ryanadvisory.com. Fantastic. And I'll put all of that in the show notes. Thank you so much, Peter. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, Derek. That was Peter Ryan of Ryan Advisory. If you want any of the show notes, as always, go to outsourceaccelerator.com slash podcast. And as always, if you want to ask us anything, just drop us an email to ask at outsourceaccelerator.com. See you next time.